Open your Bibles to Romans 14, to a very, very important chapter of Scripture. It's not one of those chapters that's at the forefront of many people's minds when it comes to studying the Scripture, but in reality, it deals with issues that are at the forefront of our minds so often. It deals with issues of conscience. It deals with issues of doubt and hesitancy and reluctance and misgiving, we might say. It deals with perplexity, even conflict among believers over those issues. It's not a chapter that you'll find at the center of a lot of, we might say, theological debates, but it's right at the center of where you and I live. It's a passage that addresses what so many people feel when they live, it seems like they're under a constant sense of guilt over something going on in their life, over some behavior, over some action, or who are always worried about whether what they're doing is pleasing to the Lord, or even sometimes whether their friends are pleasing to the Lord, whether they should even be with those friends, hang out with those friends whether they have family members who have different opinions about different activities and different behaviors, and they don't always understand within that makeup what is right and what is wrong. This is a chapter for those who feel like perhaps they're missing out on the full joy of their Christian life because they're always going around wondering if what they're doing is in the will of God or whether it's not. They're afflicted, we might say, in their conscience. Or they might struggle with whether to hang out with certain Christians, whether to maintain fellowship with certain Christians because of some of the choices that they make or don't make. It's a chapter that really kind of touches on all of those things, and it's a chapter then that is right at the center of where you and I live, the kind of things that we struggle with. But really, before you can understand what Paul has to say about the conscience in this chapter, you really need to think again about how the conscience is defined. And if you were with us a little over a year ago, you may remember that Paul dealt with that and touched on that back in Romans chapter 2. And if you have your Bibles, you can look with me back there because it provides just a little bit of background for us in Romans 2 particularly looking at verses 14 and 15. The apostle, you remember, said this. He says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul was writing about those who are convicted or those who are judged by the law. And he recognized when he lays out this picture of God ultimately judging all of us according to the law, he recognized and he understood that there were many, many who had not heard if you will, the Old Testament, or they had not heard from the law of Moses. They hadn't heard specifically the law. And although they didn't have the law or they didn't have the Scripture, they didn't have, we might even say, the gospel, Paul says they show the work of the law 
written on their hearts by instinctively doing the things which are written in the law. Not that they do them in detail. It's not as if they uh, develop a moral code that is an exact copy of God's Old Testament law or any of those things. But what he's saying is that they adopt some of it. They reflect at least in part some of that moral code. It might come through or or by means of some pagan religion, a false religion. Uh, It might come in some secular philosophy. It might come just simply in some governmental civil makeup or organization, but they all establish an ideal of moral uprightness. And in all those things, they demonstrate some basic understanding of what is a murderer, what is a thief, what is a, an adulterer, what is a commitment to marriage or a lack of commitment to marriage. They, they, they manifest some idea of fairness or freeloading or laziness or whatever it might be. And he's saying this is all imprinted or written on their hearts when they're born. It's, it's natural to them. This is by nature that it's there. Of course, the question is, where does it all come from? Where, does, where, where do all these ideas, these codes these moral understandings, where do they come from? Why do we have them and why are they so much in common across all cultures, even places that don't have the Scripture? Well, the short answer, of course, is what Paul says, is that the law is written on their hearts. But beyond that, Paul speaks about the conscience. He says this law, this code this whatever is written on their hearts, manifest itself with their conscience bearing witness either against them or for them. It is either, as he says, at times accusing them or excusing them. Now, if you think about it, that's, that's really kind of funny that we even care what our conscience says to us. Like it really matters. I mean, ever ever thought about it? You're you're kind of doing something and and you hesitate to do it because there is sort of proverbially a, a little voice inside of your head telling you you shouldn't do it. Really, why do we even care? But we do. We all do. No matter where we're born, what culture we come from, we all care. We all lose sleep over those kinds of things. We all wrestle with those kinds of things. Because we have within us this built-in idea of rightness and wrongness, this perception of what we believe is right and wrong. And that is the basic idea of the conscience. It is your own perception or your own consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. What is the moral standard and what it is not. It's that faculty that God has designed in each one of us by which we measure ourselves according to what we think or what we know to be right and wrong. If you look across all creation, animals don't seem to have this kind of conscience. Other uh, beings, other creatures, whatever species don't seem to have this kind of conscience. Only mankind has it. And Paul says here in Romans chapter 2, it's always either accusing or excusing us. 
It's always making some accusation against us or it's always trying to justify some action, some behavior. And then Paul really gets into the reason why we care. The reason why it's there. The reason why we even have a conscience. It's because God has written onto your heart, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, God has written on your heart this idea that one day you will be held accountable. You will be held accountable. In fact, that's what he says there in Romans chapter 2, the next verse. He says in verse 15, They show the work of the law written on their hearts while their consciences bear witness or their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's the issue. The issue why you're struggling is because you have written in your heart or you have some innate natural sense that you are going to be standing before God, before His judgment throne, and there is in your heart a constant debate about whether or not you will be found acceptable to Him. Whether or not your behavior will be acceptable to Him. And every person experiences this. Every person knows this no matter where they come from. Now because this conscience is based on the realization of God and of His final judgment, the real need then for our conscience is to understand the basis of this judgment. It's to understand, we might say, how we will be judged or what will be judged. And so we might say a well-informed conscience is one which is informed accurately by God and an ill-informed conscience is one which is not accurately informed by God. Or to use the language of Scripture, if you were to go outside this passage and look at other places, what you would see is the Bible speaks about good consciences. Those are consciences which are well informed by Scripture. And it speaks about weak consciences. Those are consciences which are not well informed. They are therefore less reliable and they have conflicting information. And it doesn't really matter how long you've been a Christian. You could be a Christian for 60, 70 years and still have bad information informing your conscience which gives you hesitancy to do things. And sometimes even when you get the information, it still is a struggle. I still struggle personally calling someone after nine at night because my parents told me it's wrong to call someone after nine o'clock at night. And so I have to stop before I do that and is this okay? And I have to remind myself, nowhere does it say what time of day you can call someone, right? I have to struggle when someone calls me after nine. Let's just take care of that right now. (laughs) To just not be offended sometimes. Not because there's any ill intent in their hearts, but just because something somewhere along the way told me it's wrong after nine o'clock. That's a, a conscience that's not informed by Scripture, necessarily. It's just informed by tradition, human opinions, those kinds of things. So the Bible speaks about the conscience in these two ways. There's a good conscience, and there's a weak conscience. And so, 
the strength of our conscience basically comes down to the accuracy of our information. If we have no information or misapplied information or poorly interpreted information or whatever it might be, then it's going to affect our ability to give accurate kinds of guidance. Conscience's warnings will no longer be reliable indicators of what's right and what's wrong. To have a reliable conscience, a good conscience, we must have an accurate a deep understanding of God's Word, of His will as defined in Scripture. Now, with all of that basic information, go back over to Romans 14, and we can come and be better prepared to understand what's going on here because within the church at Rome, there were two different kinds of Christians, at least as Paul defines them here. There were Christians who had weak consciences, and there were Christians who had strong consciences, or we might say good, well-informed consciences. And within the church, there were amongst these Christians different kinds of activities and habits and traditions and and we might even say interpretations that were becoming divisive within the church. People were literally separating from one another and the separation was not over things which were clearly taught in Scripture or clearly defined. They were, we might say, matters of conscience. And as you read through the chapter, you can easily determine what they were. They had to do with food choices and holiday choices and alcohol, basically. Or you could say more technically, dietary laws and sacred days and drinking wine. These may not be our issues. They could be. There might be Christians who struggle with issues of alcohol today, but we struggle with things like music and and entertainment and parenting practices and healthcare choices and educational approaches. We struggle with the use of money and debt and styles of dress and all kinds of things like that, which at varying degrees people believe are clear or not clear in the Scripture. And people formulate very strong opinions in some of these areas. In some cases, they even separate over them because of choices that you make. On the other side, there are those who are not as rigid in these areas, and they have a tendency to get frustrated with those who are, impatient with those who have scruples over these kinds. Well, in the church in Rome, these issues, these food choices, these holidays, or you might say holy days this issue of whether you drink or not, all of this was causing people in the church to separate from one another. And Paul writes this chapter very directly to address that situation. And you can see the whole, the whole section is framed up by one dominant idea. The dominant idea is this, that no matter what the differences that are there over these issues of conscience, no matter what the differences are there, it is our responsibility, it is God's commandment to us that we welcome, that we accept, that we receive one another into fellowship. You can see it right there in chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Receive him, accept him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Or if you go all the way down to chapter 15, in verse 7, he wraps up the entire section, saying this again at the very end, therefore, welcome one another 
as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is the bookends of the entire section. This is about the acceptance, the welcoming spirit that we have for other people to bring them into our circle or into our fellowship. That's what the word means. Proslambano is the word. It means to accept someone into your company. It was used, for example, whenever the, whenever the Apostle Paul was, uh, was shipwrecked on the island of Malta in Acts 28, it says in verse 2 that the natives of the island welcomed Paul and his compatriots into their circle. Or... In Philemon 17, when Paul urges Philemon to welcome Onesimus, his former slave, not as a slave, but to welcome him back as a brother in Christ. In fact, Paul says, welcome him the way you would welcome me. Have the same kind of freedom in fellowship with him as you would have with me. Or more importantly, it was the word that Jesus used whenever he talked about welcoming us into His presence in heaven. And this image of God welcoming us is what is really so fundamental to this chapter. As he says, even in verse 3, he reminds us that God has welcomed you and I. He has accepted you and I. Because of His grace, because of His kindness, because of His forgiveness, He's welcomed you He's accepted you. And as we say all the way down in verse 7, as we come to, you might say, the sort of cap, uh, the cap or the end of this argument, that's the point that Paul drills home one more time. We are to receive one another, accept one another, maintain fellowship with one another as God has established and welcomed us into His fellowship. And so the big idea is here that we're not to let these matters of conscience become issues that cause us to separate from one another. Instead, we're to continue to welcome one another into our fellowship, to gather with one another, to receive one another. Why? Because God has received us unconditionally. He's received us unconditionally. Now, as I said, this issue manifested itself within the church in two camps. First of all, there were those who were weak in their conscience. Paul just calls them weak. He, we might say, uses that pejorative term. He doesn't try to hide the fact that they have ill-informed consciences. They were holding on to standards and practices that were not necessarily defined in Scripture. They stood on a kind of self-righteous judgment of those who don't follow those practices. And because of that, they were removing themselves from the company of those that they disagreed with. And then secondly, there were those that Paul calls strong. We might say free in their conscience. They were well-informed consciences. They understood issues from Scripture maybe more clearly. They knew that they had freedom in certain things, but they struggled basically with patience and love toward those who were weak in their conscience, who had these kinds of hang-ups. And they apparently even became argumentative, as Paul says there in verse 1, as the one who is weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. So they, had, they sort of wanted to dominate over these weak believers with, with what they felt like were their superior arguments. 
And so there's obviously a command, especially there in verse 1, to the strong, to receive the weak into fellowship, not to try to argue them into your position, but to simply love them, to simply show them the kind of grace that they had received. Later on, Paul will give commands to the weak, not to be judgmental, not to condemn the strong, which would, of course, be their tendency. But in each one, we are to receive them into our fellowship. Now, in order to sort of break this down for us, I think you can identify as you move through chapter 14 a number of helpful principles that equip you and I to be able to do what Paul commands us to do in verse 1. It, 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 it equips us to be able to receive in good conscience, to receive in the spirit of fellowship, to receive these brothers and sisters into our circles, to accept them, we might say, even into our hearts. Before we get into the details of that, let me just take a moment and just, I want to just read the entire chapter to you so you can hear where Paul is going with this and understand the kind of issues that he's talking about. He says there in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let uh, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, and another esteems all, esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, excuse me, Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? O you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard to be good uh, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, 
But it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything. Excuse me, it's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now just broadly speaking, Paul has two principles that he's laying out here. One is that we shouldn't condemn one another for issues of conscience. And the other is that within that, we cannot compromise on issues of conscience. It's important that we guard our conscience. But how you navigate through all of that is vital. And so Paul's helping us understand. He's equipping us to be able to maintain love and fellowship and acceptance and unity with brothers by laying down a number of principles on uh, in, in navigating, you might say, through these matters of disagreement over conscience. The first one, the first one in verse, uh, we might say two and three, is this. Don't look down on those who don't have freedom of conscience. Don't look down on those who do not have freedom of conscience. Paul's command there, welcome those who are weak in conscience in verse 1, is immediately followed up with an introduction of the issue. One person believes he may eat anything, while another person eats only vegetables. Now, we really don't know of any historical background on why someone would eat only vegetables. We have, of course, the story of Daniel, who in uh, Daniel chapter 1 made that that uh, uh, vow to eat only vegetables just so that he could validate the power of God and not be forced to eat something that was outside of the Mosaic Code. And so it could be that there were some people who were trying to follow what they felt like was this higher standard that Daniel had set. And they were Jews, in other words, living outside of Israel in pagan cities all around the Roman Empire and had decided that they were going to eat only vegetables. It could be even some Gentiles who had come out of pagan worship and they were themselves not very wealthy. And so therefore, the only kind of meat they could buy would be meat which had been recycled, if you will. It had been used on a pagan altar in the morning and in the afternoon would be taken to the, the uh, market and sold for a discounted price because it had been used in a pagan ceremony and it bothered their conscience because they felt like somehow that meat was tainted now in some way. And so perhaps they just avoided meat altogether because they couldn't afford to buy any of the, we might say, untainted meat. But whatever it is, no matter what the background, there were people who had this issue over eating meat. They had reasons for it. They had things that they worked through in their minds. The problem was simply that their reasons were not very good reasons, at least according to Scripture. They had formulated restrictions that were not really restrictions when you really understood what the Scripture said. And so, 
we would say that their conscience was not well informed. Or Paul says their conscience is weak. It was bothered. It accused them of wrongdoing whenever they ate meat. Still, to them there was a sense that God would be angry not only with them, but God would be angry with others who ate meat. Now, this obviously caused frustration. It would cause conflict. It would cause arguments, it seems, in verse 1. And the arguments came with those who were strong, who clearly understood that the Bible doesn't forbid the eating of meat. They understood that these weak believers who disagreed with them or even sometimes judged them uh, would be difficult, we might say, to work with. And so apparently they just avoided these weak believers or they were constantly quarreling and disputing with them over these issues. And so they probably just decided that instead of quarreling, they would just avoid one another. Paul says, though, you can't do that. That is not the will of the Lord. You have to receive them. You have to accept them into your fellowship even knowing the frustrations that it will bring. And as we'll see later, even knowing that it may mean that you cannot even eat meat at times while you're together with them. You have to receive them into your fellowship and not to provoke them. Now when you hear that, you might think, well, does that mean then that I have got to carry in my life all of the hang-ups and all of the restrictions that everyone around me has. Are you saying that, that because I've got to receive these people and be sensitive to these people, not provoke these people, are you saying that whatever their issues of conscience are now have to become my issues of conscience? Because that certainly sounds like a pathway to legalism, to laying on others Uh, restrictions and mandates that the Bible doesn't clearly give us. Is that what Paul is calling for here? Well, when you begin to ask those kinds of questions, it might be helpful to remind yourself exactly what Paul's talking about when he talks about a weak believer. And down in verse 20, you can get a sense of what Paul means when he's speaking about a weak believer. He says there in verse 20, do not For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So this is ultimately what Paul is concerned about. He is concerned with causing another believer to stumble in their Christian walk. And so we might say a weak believer is not everyone who holds a different opinion than you on issues of conscience. That's not Paul's uh, 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 point here. A weak believer is a believer who is likely to stumble because of watching you exercise your freedoms. That's why they're weak. A weak believer is someone who's likely to stumble Because of watching you exercise your particular freedoms. Now you could get a better sense of this if you have your Bibles. Flip over one book to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And by reading what Paul says in that chapter about weak believers, those with weak consciences, you can better understand what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. He says this, Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For... If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So here's some people who, who understand you can lay a slab of meat up on an idol altar and nothing happens to it. It is put up there as meat. It's taken down as meat. It is no more defiled and won't make you defiled any more than any other piece of meat. But he's saying there's some other people who struggle with that. They still think about these pagan ceremonies as if something spiritual is happening and that meat is going to defile you. So he says, look, if you see them eating in this, or they see you eating in this idol's temple, their conscience is weak. If their conscience is weak, you, they are encouraged, he says in verse 10, to eat food offered to idols. And so... By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. There's the important if clause. There's the important determining factor. If what I'm doing would encourage someone to go out and violate their conscience, then I need to take particular care in doing those things. Paul's calling on us to welcome these weak brothers into our fellowship, to welcome them and receive them into our fellowship, but he's not prescribing a blank check for anybody who has a different opinion than you on issues of conscience to then shackle you with whatever their restrictions are. He's particularly looking at those who would be caused to stumble. And if a fellow believer is likely to stumble, they're likely to be encouraged to violate their conscience because they're following your example, because their conscience isn't fully convinced over something. Paul says you need to receive them and don't quarrel about these things, but just love them. This is why, by the way, you see Paul doing different things at different times. He didn't take the restrictions of others as a, as a universally and unceasing principle that he had to follow at all times. In fact, in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says in chapter 9, "...to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews." To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I might by all means save some. So Paul is saying, look, I adjusted my behavior. I adjusted my, you might say, standards that I followed according to the, 
the audience of people that I'm trying to minister to. And if they are weak, if they are somebody who would be encouraged to violate their conscience or cause to stumble, I became weak when I was with them. He said, I would do all those things because of my love for Christ. Paul didn't believe he always had to behave in a way that those outside the law would have behaved. He didn't feel like he always had to behave in ways that those under the law would behave. To do that would have been to shackle himself in some standard of legalism. But he tailored his behavior to those who might be caused to stumble because they were weak. That is, by the way, why when you get over to 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul can take quite a firm stand against something like dietary laws. He can tell you in Romans 14 to bear up with those who have these dietary inhibitions. And yet, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So he's talking here about those who aren't weak. They're not people who are going to be encouraged to do something. They're actually trying to be, to be leaders within the movement of getting others to stop eating certain foods. And Paul says that is to be rejected. That is a doctrine of demons. So don't take what Paul says here in Romans 14 as some blanket cover for those who want to impose every extra biblical standard they have on you. But when Paul's speaking here about weak believers, he's thinking primarily of those believers who would be likely to try and follow your example before their consciences were fully convinced. They'd be caused to stumble. Paul says, don't look down on them. Don't get frustrated. Don't lose patience. Receive them gently into your fellowship. Welcome them into your circles. That gives us a second principle here. If you are one of those who on the other side of the coin struggle in some areas of conscience, Paul tells you in verses 3 and 4, don't judge those who have freedom of conscience. So this takes not the strong but the weak and he's talking to them and he says, let not the one who abstains. He abstains because his conscience would bother him. So he abstains from eating meat. Don't let the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he'll be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So Paul recognizes the very real tendency and the very real possibility that those who are weak in their conscience will easily begin passing judgment on those who are free. And they conclude that in doing whatever you're doing, in eating whatever you're eating, or drinking whatever you're drinking, or wearing whatever you're wearing, or watching whatever you're watching, listening to whatever you're listening to, or using your money and time for whatever you're doing... Whatever it is, 
they're convinced that you are displeasing the Lord. That what you're doing is sinful. And so the temptation for them is because they think that you are sinful, the temptation for them is to pass judgment on, them, on you. And if you want to know what he means by judgment, just look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. This is what judgment is. They are, they are declaring that you have fallen. They are declaring that you are rejected or you are to be rejected or God will reject you. They're deciding on your rejection, on your condemnation, on your judgment. And this is the temptation for those who build up on extra biblical standards. These weak believers appear to take their faith and their religion very seriously. They appear to think that they have thought through every detail and every standard and formulated a rule, it seems, for everything. The problem is, of course, is that their rules go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. And the real problem is not that they take their religion so seriously. The real problem is that they take themselves so seriously. Because this is what Paul says. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you to reject one of God's children? What makes you think that your rules are supposed to carry the authority for these brothers and sisters? Don't have such an inflated view of yourself, he's saying. You're not the one who determines who is condemned and who is received. You're not the one who makes all the standards. You're not the one to whom they will give an answer. You're not the one to pass judgment on them. Who are you to reject them? It's before his own master, he says, that he stands and he falls. And you have to accept your place. You have to leave God in his place. You have to accept your place. Even if what they're doing is unbiblical, you have to receive the fact that God's the one that will take care of them. It's not your job. God's the one to whom he must give an account. And by God, he says, he will stand or fall. And by the way, God says he's going to make him stand. And Paul says God's going to make him stand. Even with all of his weaknesses, even if he is still sinning, guess what? He will be made to stand. Paul's quite confident of that. Because he's quite confident of the gospel. Which brings us to the third principle that equips us to receive each other in these matters of disagreement over conscience. And that is simply this. Remember how God has accepted you. Just stop and think and remember how God has accepted you. I mean, this is really what everything comes down to. This is what Paul says there at the end of verse 3, what he says even later on, at the end of verse 15. Those who would want to reject a brother or sister, those who would want to abandon fellowship and, and, and leave them outside of your circle, Paul reminds them of perhaps the most important issue of all. God has welcomed him. So here you are in the position of rejecting a person that God has accepted. Do you understand what you're doing? 
You are rejecting a person that God has accepted. You say, well, I don't know if God's accepted him because he broke this and that other rule. No, he doesn't accept him based on the rules that he kept. He accepts him how? Based on Christ. And here you are basically rejecting that standard. Saying Christ is not enough. And God has welcomed him and God has received him and you're not going to receive him. And so you reject a brother and sister in Christ, putting you in a position of rejecting someone God's welcomed. In fact, this might be the best way for you to think through these kinds of issues. Not only are we constantly refining our thinking and staying within the boundaries of Scripture to the best that we can, but the best way to determine our attitude toward others with whom we disagree is simply to ask ourselves, what is God's attitude toward them? Is it gracious? Is it forgiving? Is it loving? Is it kind and patient? It would be all those things if we understand the gospel at all. In fact, if we understand the gospel, we can only conclude that God's attitude is one of acceptance because of Christ. So, As Paul says, that should be our attitude. We must accept and welcome these brothers and acknowledge that it is before his or her own master that he stands and falls. God is going to make him stand. Now Paul will take this point and in verses 5 through 9 he'll expand it. We'll spend some time there next week, but ultimately he'll punctuate the whole argument down in 15.7 with the same idea, just driving home this point. We have no right to reject from our circle, our fellowship, those whom God himself has accepted. We must receive them, we must welcome them, we must accept them. And the principles apply, it doesn't matter which camp you're in, it's applied both ways. If God is patient with the weak, then we need to be patient with the weak. If God accepts those who are free, then we need to accept those who are free because of Christ. And so everything is driven by the gospel. And really, you may believe that you know a lot about what the Bible commands and a lot about what the Bible forbids, and you might can figure out a way to get along with uh, those who are like you, but if you can't find a way to get along with those brothers and sisters who disagree with you on matters of conscience, it reveals that you understand very little about the gospel. As Paul says in Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The issue, in the end, is not who has more knowledge, who can win the argument, who can prove their point or any of those other things. The issue is, who can demonstrate the grace and love of the gospel in the way we have received grace and love through the gospel? That is the foundation. That is the key principle, really above all the other principles. That's what Paul's calling us to in this chapter. Well, more next week as we will work our way through some other very, very helpful things, I think, thinking through these issues. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we are grateful that your word does speak so clearly. And it speaks clearly not just to 
certain regulations and rules, but it speaks clearly to the gospel, to the grace and love that comes by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that which has transformed us. It is that which has taught us repentance and given us life and brought us near to you. Lord, may we then, as gospel people, exhibit that same kind of love. May we draw near to those who are weak. May we draw near to those who even differ with us on matters of conscience and opinion and receive them out of the love of Christ because we know how much we have received, how much we have been received. Lord, we are so grateful. We who have been obstinate in heart, rebellious and weak, you have welcomed us. You have welcomed us so freely and with so much love. Make us then a people who imitate our God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.